Okay, the poem for tonight. Oh, by the way, oops. Um, sorry, I didn't bring it. God bless. I've got the poem. I've, there's a collection of lyrics, um, a book written on Robert. Um, that's only the surface of what's going on now with Susanna Way, if you could only imagine. Um, God, you oh. brought a lyrics book last time. I, yeah, I did, but I wanted to bring it same, tonight. The same one you wanted to Yeah, bring. there's a book called The Prospect of Lyric, which is a, um, a collection of essays on the lyric poem. And um, one of the writers in there happens to be somebody you know. I've done the piece on um, Dunn, John Dunn, and it's a wonderful book. It, um, Louise Cowens, who did the, all the genres, um, took that as her last book. So it brought to an end a really wonderful career. All of the books are wonderful. One on epic, one on tragedy, one on comedy, and one on lyric. And I meant to bring the one on lyric just to show you, because we've been doing the lyric. You know, we're not going into it. It's not our um, purpose. But in case any of you have been inspired you know, by the lyric and want to look into it more closely. I think that's probably one of the finest books out on lyric. I'll bring it, I'll bring it next week. Um, and I, if you do get it or you read it, I really would love to hear what you think about the essay on Dunn, but anyway, John Dunn tonight. We didn't do Holy, we didn't, we didn't do Dunn last week, right? Yeah. We did. Oh, that's right, we're going to do another one tonight. Yeah. Um, page five, Divine Poems, A Hymn to God the Father. Be aware of Dunn's honey on the word done. Because like most poets, he is super conscious of what words do and the way puns open up dimensions of meaning. Divine Poems, A Hymn to God the Father. Would thou forgive that sin where I begun, which was my sin, though it were done before? Would thou forgive that sin through which I run, and do run still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Would thou forgive that sin which I have won others to sin, and made my sin I their door? Encourage other people to sin through my own. Will thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. I hope you hear the pun. You don't have him, me, because I'm separated from you in my sins. Um, I have a sin of fear that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore, but swear by thyself that at my death thy sun shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done, I fear no more. Okay, let's start. Tonight I'm not going to do any review because I want to make sure that we are <coughs> as little pressed as we need to be. So um, I'm not going to follow my general practice. Um, I want to cover these, and I'm going to come to these in a second, but I want to, I want to um, um, 
make a comment on this question that I'm asking all of you to hold on to here at the outset of things. Um, why did Dante choose Virgil, not Homer, as his guide? I'm, I hope to answer that thoroughly by the time we get to the end of our work tonight. Um, but I want to add this just as a way of asking you to think about these things. Um, I'm going to come to this in a minute when I talk about the poet as a prophet. Homer, I'm going to call the prophet of nature. I'll come, I'll come back to that in a second. I'm, I'm going to call Virgil the poet of ephemeral things, passing things, things that are lo being lost all the time. Um, Homer's two epics um, reveal to us the, the greatness, at least you certainly have it from me. I mean, I, I know that there are lots of moderns who don't read the poems that way. Lots of moderns read the Iliad as a, as a poem celebrating the futility of war, showing how stupid it is and that, that human beings are nothing but playthings of the gods. That's a typical modern reader. I happen to believe that's absolutely wrong, but Homer, I, I've, I've um, argued, um, tried to show in a way that I think is faithful to the book, has this view that there is this um, innate goodness in man, that, that um, man, man is capable of doing extraordinary things. Achilles is the witness of that in the Iliad, Odysseus is the witness of that, and, and Penelope in the Odyssey. That what we see them do when you compare them against all the other figures in the books, is incredible. It's extraordinary. You have to admire them for their greatness. Um, so Homer gives us a view celebrating, <coughs> honoring this greatness that man is capable of. The Protestant mind has concluded that because we're damned, we're all bad. I've made that argument before. The, 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 one, of the, one of the differences between a Protestant and a Catholic is that the Protestant believes that the, one of the consequences of the fall was that we were completely ruined, depraved. Man is depraved by nature. That's their understanding. You can only be saved by, gay, by grace. But naturally, we're depraved. Milton's word for it is all corrupt. I think it's in the 10th book of Paradise Lost, all corrupt. Um, Homer and Virgil are, these are pagans, not Christians. Homer and Virgil, they don't know anything about grace. They're not Christians, they're pre-Christians. But Homer and Virgil are saying, no, that there is this extraordinary greatness to man. The cost of achieving it is extraordinary. You have to, we've seen what it took Achilles. It meant giving up everything, choosing death, and, and virtually the same for um, Odysseus. So both of these pagan poets had this view of man that he was capable of doing extraordinary things, even though the cost of it was horrendous. Nothing less than everything. But they show that there is this greatness to man. Now one of the differences between Catholics and Protestants is that um, we know that even though man is capable of this greatness, it cannot merit him heaven. So what we learn from these pagans is this, with respect to the temporal order, man is capable of doing these great things only, it's really clear, only with the help of gods. 
We've seen that with the Iliad and the Odyssey. The gods are constantly. So the pagan view of man is that man had this extraordinary ability to do great things. He was capable of doing evil things because the books are full of men doing evil things and women. Um, but he can only do it with the help of the gods. So that it's really clear to them that they see that there's some transcendent aspect to man's character. We know with the coming of Christ that with all that greatness, it, it may lead to great things here on the earth, but it will never get man to heaven, to salvation. Okay. Now, it, I'm pointing that out tonight because I want to get to this question, but also as a way, and Dante's going to make this really clear. Dante's going to be very, very clear about this. Just as a way of putting this into perspective, um, because in a Protestant view, such things are not possible. They don't allow for that. Man is depraved. So because he's damned, he can only be saved with Christ, because he's damned, he's incapable of doing any good. Yes, I hope you see the difference here. It's very subtle, but it's real. What Homer and Virgil show us is man is capable of doing great things with respect to their temporal ends here on earth. Okay? I just want to get that clear. Because Dante follows in this tradition. We can call it the humanist Catholic tradition. No Catholic who understands his faith could ever say man can save himself. He cannot. Just not capable. But no good Catholic would say man is not capable of doing something good, inherently good on his own, <coughs> because we don't believe that the fall, the, the consequences of the fall were complete. We can do lots of good things with respect to our temporal end, and they will still never merit us heaven. Okay? It's a subtle thing, but it's real, because it's one of the one of the fundamental differences between us and a Protestant. And you know from my perspective, since I began this class, that it's been really crucial because my sense is most Catholics growing up in our world today are half Protestant. We've grown up in this culture and have this darkened view of man. Um, we, we need to learn something from these pagans. And one of my arguments has been that the, there's something ex extraordinary in these pagans, that they've got these prophetic qualities, all of them suggesting something about to happen. That man has this extraordinary... You know, the, the end of the Iliad and the Odyssey was a parousia, the, the, um, the return of the king, the, the advent. The, the endings are both advent endings. These extraordinary things happen. The end of the Iliad, the end of the Odyssey. They're, hap they're going to happen. They are, they're happening in the Aeneid as well. If we read the Aeneid, we find the same thing going on. That all what I'm going to what I'm calling these converging realities, that are a number of things taking place in, in um, Aeneas's world, that show something's happening beyond the power of men to bring about. That the gods are at work bringing a number of things together, and they're all pointing towards the founding of Rome, the center of our faith. How did Virgil know that? How did he do that? That he could have done that to me is extraordinary. Nobody will ever convince me he wasn't close to God or close to Christ. So one of the things I'm going to urge at you at the end of this, I don't know what, you might want to run me out the door, but we'll see when we get there. Um, so this is the sort of broad context. Let me take up these things now. Rome, Virgil's treatment of Rome. Um, 
We've seen from the very beginning. Hi. Who are you? Oh, Clem. I was here two weeks ago. Say your name. Clem. Clem? Mm -hmm. Hi, Clem. <coughs> Glad you're back. Mm -hmm. um, um, the two qualities that set Rome apart from all of the other cities in the Aeneid are its universality and its timelessness. That there's something about Rome that locates it in time, in history, and eternity at the same time. So it's set off from what I call the dying cities. All the other cities are corrupted by greed and or some kind of betrayal. And, and often a betrayal that involves a blasphemy. Some um, dishonest way of standing with the gods. But there's a number of things to remember here about um, Rome. Remember in our, in our time together last week, we saw that when Aeneas came to Evander, and Evander showed him the countryside, that um, Virgil was presenting it in terms of his own current Rome, the capital, the, um, the Colosseum, the, 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 Tar the Tarquinian rock, if that's what, if I remember. Um, so he was juxtaposing those two worlds, this primeval forest that was undeveloped against Virgil's, what we would date today call modern Rome, like modern New York, or that those two worlds were set against each other, and he, he described the, the lore about Saturn, um, and Saturn is the counterpart to Jove, um, or sorry, to Kronos in the Greek world that um, Zeus and all the sons of Kronos overthrew their father to take control because if you know anything about the generation, it's all about time. Time eats people up. That's what the myth is about. The father eating his children, the, the younger generation rising up to overthrow the father. Um, so Saturn stands to Kronos. He was overthrown by his son and he was a fugitive and he came to Italy and that's where he resides secret, undercover. So the word latium is from latent, to be latent, hidden, secret. So Rome is a place where the gods are at work latently, secretly. Um, it's the eternal city. Remember I read that passage from the Iliad where Aeneas is described as belonging to the, the line of Dardanus, mm -hmm. which will never die out. So he was chosen to the hero as a way of indicating that Rome is eternal. It, it belongs to a divine order. Its universality is shown by what Aeneas brings together when he comes to found Rome. He brings Asia Minor. He's from Troy, which is the west coast of Turkey. Yeah. So he brings Asia Minor um, and Africa, because he's with Dido for a year, to Europe. So Rome itself um, represents the bringing together of a diversity of peoples. That's what Rome, remember we talked about the difference between the spirited horse in Dido, Carthage, and the sow, the ugly, uncomely um, female, this ugly white sow with her 30 piglets, nurturing. Because Rome is a place for not just the noble, not the accomplished, everybody. Um, and he also brings his three marriages. 
He lost Creusa in Asia Minor. He had to leave Dido. And he enters into a marriage that's prearranged, not a matter of choice, like everything else in his life. He's doing what the gods ask, not having his own will. So Rome represents this place of self-effacement, self-denial, giving up everything um, in order to bring this something new into existence, whatever it is. And we've talked about that again and again. Aeneas never knows. I mean, that's part of his greatness. Today, after Descartes and Kant and the modern world and technology, we want to have answers all the time. There's a, one of the women that I really like at the rec center has been searching for a job and every time I saw her she was anxious and saying I've got to know, I've got to know, I want to know. I'm going to get the job. You know, we always want to know. Over here in the corner is a... <laughs> Irene was for the longest time searching for jobs and every time I talked to her she was so quiet. I mean she was perfectly content to sort of wait. I would just thought how, how good for her. You know, it's not something easy for us to do generally. We want to know because we tend to associate knowledge with power. We know something, we've got control over it. Aeneas had to give it up moment after moment after moment after moment in his whole life. We talked about it last time. He's entering a mystery, always. He's carrying a lot that he knows, but he's always entering a mystery. And he has to give himself to it, to trust. Big issue, I think, for all of us, isn't it? It's a matter of faith to learn to trust, to put our lives away. So this is Rome. It's not just this earthly city. It's not this tourist place. How many Romans know this? <laughs> I would say virtually none of them. Um, but that's our inheritance. That's our Catholic inheritance. Um, that's Virgil's understanding. That's certainly the Augustine loved Virgil. I mean, that would have been his understanding of Rome, you know, when he entered the church and came into it. The poet is prophet. Um, Oh wait, before we, Rome is the place of self-denial. We've talked about that. Can you guys recall, I just want to see how you're whole. What are the losses? Identify them. The losses. Every book had a loss, I mentioned that. Every single book Aeneas had to give something. What are the losses? If, if Rome is coming into existence, it only comes into existence because of the things he has to put away to go on to this other thing. What are those losses? He lost his father. He lost, lost his, his father. first wife. His house, his wife. Dido. Dido, for sure. Bunch of ships. First book, the very first thing, he loses one, one ship in the storm. Second book, he loses Dido, his home. Was it the second and third book? Troy. In the third book, at the very end, he loses his father, although we learned that when he came to Carthage, he had just lost him. So loss hangs over his life. So think about how much we always want more. Aeneas is a person who's content, <coughs> learns that he only goes forward by denying himself, giving things up constantly. The women burn the ships in the, in the Dido, fourth book, fifth book, the women burn the ships. Right. He loses Palinurus, the steersman. And it's interesting, if you put the contrast between that and Elpinor in Odysseus, Palinurus is doing everything he can to stay awake. The god pushes him overboard. And, and Virgil's description of him was something like, 
he wanted to, um, for counting too much on a calm world. It's like he took it for granted that it would be too easy. Virgil's asking us to stay awake because there's always some danger just off the horizon. He loses. Um, loses his nurse. His Kaida, that's just in the seven, when he comes to Italy. Um, and then he will have um, um, volumes of losses in the war. I mean, men are going to die right and left. Um, so if we put all this together, Rome is an image. This is extraordinary. Rome is an image of something not yet. It's almost like he had this great faith that you continue to give up because there will be something more. Did he know Christ? No. Um, but he's so close to him in that way. I mean, Rome, if Rome means anything, it means it's the city um, looking forward to something more that he trusts that with all the things that we lose, there will always be something more. That's why it's called Melancholy Virgil. Virgil. So the, the poet, um, the poet is prophet as I've been describing him. If I were to describe Homer, I, I'd say Homer is the poet of nature's largesse. Nature's largesse. All the similes affirm nature. Homer's showing that there is this great goodness to nature. Even though people are all constantly at war, nature is there. It's present. There's some inherent goodness to man. There's lots that threatens it. We saw it in both works. But in Achilles and Odysseus, we see what man is <coughs> capable of doing with the help of the gods and what it costs. Not easy. I would call Virgil, Virgil's called melancholy Virgil. I would call Virgil um, um, the poet of the ephemeral, of things passing. He is as fully aware of man's greatness as Homer is, but he seems to identify with everything that's mortal in the world, that it, it will be lost, it'll all be gone. I want to come back to that because I think there's something extraordinary there. But, um, and you know from my own reading that I think they're both um, prophetic. Um, for those of you who may not know, Virgil wrote two other books um, before he settled into the Aeneid. And in one of them called the Ecologues, there's this um, famous prophecy that Christians look to to show that Virgil was prophetic of Christ's coming. In the fourth Ecologue, Virgil speaks of this boy, this infant that's going to be born, that's going to save the world. Where in the world did he get this? Christ is just a few years away. Rome is now founded. <coughs> it's going to be the center of Christianity. Virgil's the poet of that founding. And he has this prophecy of this little child that will um, come and unite the world. Speed on those centuries, said the parquet to their spindles, concordant with the steadfast knot of destiny. Oh, enter, for the time approaches your great glory, dear scion of gods, great aftergrowth of Jupiter. Um, 
Begin, small boy, to know your mother with a smile. He goes on and on. This child's going to be born. It's another reason why we wonder whether he read the Old Testament, whether he didn't read people like um, Isaiah, and, you know, where, where the, these prophecies. Um, how in the world did Virgil get this? Um, just What's another. What's the name of that book? The Echologues. And the, it's the fourth Echologue where he, he has that, speaks about this child to come. Okay, what I want to do now is um, try to quickly go through some readings um, to put things together so we can come to these two things and close, finish our work with Virgil. Turn to page 175. Aeneas enters... Um, Apollo's cave, the Sibyls with the Sibyl, <coughs> and uh, you should know from those. I gave you a handout on the underworld, I, th I think, in which I set out the, the different areas of it to show you how how much more refined, how much more differentiated it is than Homer's treatment of the underworld in the Odyssey. On page one seventy five. <coughs> um, he comes to the fields of mourning, and there we get this description. Middle of page 175. The fields of mourning came in view, so called, since here are those whom pitiless love consumed with cruel wasting, hidden on paths apart by myrtle woodland growing overhead. Think about the constant illusions. Um, growing overhead, not seen. In death itself, pain will not let them be. He saw here Phaedra, Procris, Eryphile, sadly showing the wounds her hard son gave, Evadne and Pasiphae, at whose side Laodamia walked, and Caeneus, a young man once, a woman now, and turned again by fate into <coughs> older form. Among them, with her fatal wounds still fresh, Phoenician Dido wandered the deep wood. The Trojan captain paused. He wept and spoke tenderly to her, Dido, so forlorn. The story then that came to me was true, that you are out of life, had met your end by your own hand. Was I, was I the cause? I swear by heaven's stars, by the high gods, by any certainty below the earth, I left your land against my will. Down, I could not believe that I would hurt you so terribly by going. Wait a little. Do not leave. She's already obviously beginning to leave him. Do not leave my sight. Am I someone to flee from? The last word destiny lets me say to you is this. Remember I, I mentioned this last week when Dido's talking with her sister she says she's going to practice magic. She knows how to keep Aeneas. And then she pronounced that curse. She's showing she's kept him. He holds on to the guilt. How can he let go of it? She's with him. There's no way he could escape her in one sense. He's going to hold on to the... I mean, it's going to be interesting to watch what Dante does with all of this, but I want to read that just to, to, to underscore this, but also to point ahead, because Dante is going to be very deliberate in what he does with this. Aeneas, with such pleas, tried to placate the burning soul, savagely glaring back, and tears came into his eyes. But she had turned with gaze fixed on the ground as he spoke on, her face no more affected than if she were immobile granite or Marpesian stone. 
At length she flung away from him and fled his enemy still into the shadow she has him fixed. Where he's whose bride she once had been, Sychaeus joined in her sorrows and returned her love. Aeneas still gazed after her in tears, shaken by her ill fate and pitying her. He will go on to the father, but I just wanted to read that um, to underscore this, but also to set some things up because of what Dante's going to do on this. Um, um, in book eight, when I don't want to read this, but um, let me at least point you to it. In book eight, after Aeneas leaves Evander, he sets off to Etruria to meet with the Etruscans and to make alliances with them. And he stops um, to rest for a while, and um, Venus comes to him on page. It's 247. Take a look. Just I don't want to read this at length, but I want to. Um, At the top of 248, I should urge my son to accept if he were not of mingled blood through a Sabine mother, heir to her fatherland. No, you are he whose age and foreign birth the fates approve and whom the gods desire. Enter on to your great duty now, great heart. She tells him, do not be afraid to fight Turnus. And she gives him this new armor. <clears throat> now think about the difference between this armor and Achilles, because the Iliad ended with his, remember getting this, we talked about that, that he always had his father's armor before, then after he made that choice, he had this new armor, all, all that it meant. And on the face of it were the two cities, the city at war and the city at peace, because in, I think as Homer, my own understanding of that is that's Homer's depiction of the world. Those are the conditions we live in here in time. And nobody could look at it. When he presented that to the world, People cringed. It, it was as if that was the truth. Now, we get that abstractly in Homer. In Virgil, in a minute, you'll see it's going to be far, far more concrete. Yeah. And, and I mean that in more ways than I'm explaining right now. I'll come to it. But she shows him the armor, and once again, <coughs> he got this first prophecy in book one from Jupiter. We get it when Jupiter shows um, Venus what's going to happen. The whole of history is unfolded. And here, um, um, all of history is unfolded. Um, on the sign, it has on page 252, the story of Romulus and Remus. Um, on uh, page 255, the war with the Gauls, the capital. Cato at the bottom of 253, the Catiline, the Cliff Alden, Caesar. Um, then in middle of 254, Augustus Caesar and Cleopatra. All of Roman history is there. Um, so it's all done. Remember, Virgil's, it's already happened. Virgil is aware of it. On page 256, all these images in Vulcan's shield, his mother's gift, were wonders to Aeneas. Knowing nothing of the events themselves, he felt joy in their pleasures, taking up upon his shoulder all the destined acts and fame of his des descendants. So he's, he's more rooted historically in history than concretely, sorry, more rooted concretely in history than Aeneas, but this is an experience absolutely foreign 
to Achilles, sorry, Achilles. Aeneas looks at this and can't make anything of it. What is he to say? You know, it's all, it's all hundreds of years off. So this is a very different kind of time once again, um, and it, showing us a very, very different kind of hero. Um, while Aeneas is now headed towards Etruria, his camp at the Tiber is being attacked. Um, on page 264, um, Turnus attempts to set fire to the camp and to the ships because he knows if he can destroy the ships, they have no escape because the only escape route is by the sea. And the bottom 263, the desperate rally. Now this voice comes from the heaven. This is Sibeli, the, the, um, like Rhea, um, Cronus's wife in the Greek world. She um, wanted to have these ships made immortal and, and, and the, the Lord of the God wouldn't do it, but promised that he would at least give them this temporary um, nature, but that when the time come, they would have to be reverted back to their divine nature and turned into nymphs. So when Turnus throws the torch on these things, he tries to burn them, but this voice from heaven comes, then a voice to chill the blood came falling through the air and reached all ranks, Rutulians and Trojan. No desperate rally defend <coughs> my ships, you Trojans. She says, don't be alarmed. The Trojans have nothing to fear right now. I mean, they're under attack, but this is the god assuring them. No equipping men for that. Turnus may sooner fire the sea itself than halls of holy. This is how certain this event will be. Nothing can stop it. It would be like trying to torch the sea. There's an inevitability to what's happening right now. Ships now go free, go as sea goddesses your mother sends you. Each broke her hawser instantly. Their bows went under like a school of dolphin. So here's this extraordinary, miraculous event taking place where ships get transformed into dolphins and swim off. Notice Turnus's response. These on the next page, 264 at the top. These wonders are all aimed at the Trojans. Jove himself has robbed them of their usual ally. No waiting for our swords and fires to do it. The open seas closed. They can't escape any longer. He takes this as important. <laughs> in support of his war effort. We see again and again and again, like, like we did in Homer's work. The, the people who are too full of themselves, I don't know that there's a better way, the people who are too full of themselves constantly misread the gods. It's only the people who are very open who, who hear the gods correctly. Um, in book nine here, um, we get the story of Nisus and Aurelius. Um, they're lovers. This is interesting. They're, I mean, we never get the word homosexual, but they're lovers. It's really clear. Nisus, the older man. Aurelius, um, um, at the top of 266, very top, handsomer than any other soldier. He's described as this very handsome kid. Um, the Trojans ask for volunteers to, to go to Aeneas and tell them, tell him that the fort's under attack so that he, he can help get back. These two men volunteer. What does this line up with in the Iliad? 
Do you remember? Those of you who've read it? Odysseus and someone else. <laughs> Diomedes. What? Diomedes. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, they had a night, a spy mission. Yeah. Yeah. Book 10 in the Iliad is the, is the point where um, Odysseus and Diomedes have to go out to scout the, the, uh, uh, the Trojans. And if you remember, they, 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 they slaughter all these sleeping enemies and take all their booty and come back. And there's that one scene, I read it to you guys, where Dolan, who was a Trojan, was sent out to spy too. And they lie to him and say that they'll let him go if he tells them the truth and he gives them all the information. And then they cut his head off, you remember? Mm -hmm. And he's still talking while the head is falling to the ground. Um, well, think about this. Here, Odysseus and, and Diomedes both get back with all this booty. Yeah? Right. Here, these two men die. So, once again, I mean, the, he's just <coughs> constantly seeing the world differently. I've got to come to this at the end. At the bottom of 272, Nisus is really clear. They've got all this booty. They need to go. Aurelius is too young, too rash, <coughs> maybe a little bit too vain because of his looks, I don't know, but he's too rash. But at the bottom of 272, Nisus spoke in a curt whisper, for he saw his friend carried away by slaughter and lust for blood. Let us have done, he said, the dawn's at hand and dangerous. As they're leaving, the middle of the next page, the light shines in Aurelius's helmet in the middle of page 273, and that gleam is picked up by um, the, the army, the Latin armies, and they surround Aurelius, um, and he's at the point of being killed when Nisus, on page 275, sees that his dear friend is about to be killed. Think about how different this is from Odysseus and Diomedes. It's just radically different. No, me, me, here I am. I did it. Take your swords to me, Rutulians. All the trickery was mine. He had not he dared do anything. He could not. Heaven's my witness and the stars that looked down on us. All he did was care too much for a luckless friend. But while he clamored, Volscian's blades thrust hard, passed through the ribs, and breached the snow. Nothing like this in Homer. The snow-white chest. Aurelius in death went reeling down, and blood streamed on his handsome length. His neck collapsing, let his head fall on his shoulder as a bright flower cut by a passing plow will droop and wither slowly, or a poppy bow it bow its head upon a tired stalk. Nothing like this in Homer ever. And look at this, what Virgil does, middle of the next page. He pitched down on the body of his friend, and there at last in the peace of death grew still. Fortunate both, if in the last, if in the least my songs avail, no future day will ever take you out of the record of remembering time. What an extraordinary expression of love. He's saying, if my verse can ever immortalize you, let it be done. It's one of the powers of poetry to help us remember, to not forget loved ones. Out of the record of remembering time, while children of Aeneas make their home around the capital's unshaken rock, and still the Roman father governs all. So he's trying to ensure that not, imagine, imagine New York today, or, or Dallas, or San Francisco, where we've got these modern cities who have no sense of the past, 
He's writing in a modern Rome that has become absolutely corrupt. It's been divided by civil wars for ages. And he's asking these modern Romans not to forget these ancient times. Because to forget them is to lose everything. Um, <clears throat> page 277. The next morning, the Rutulians approached the stockade and they put the heads of Euryalus and Nisus on spears and hold them up and taunt the Trojans. Top of 277. Each officer drew up his line of battle all in bronze and soldiers gave their anger a fitting edge with diverse versions of the night attack. The attackers' heads indeed a ghastly sight. They fixed on spears and lifted and bore out in taunting parade Euryalus and Nisus. The Trojans are shaken. These are two beloved men you know, who are sent out to get help from Aeneas. Um, on page 279, the, the scene is um, laden with meaning for Virgil. And to try to do justice to it, he asks for more help from the muses. In the middle of 279, Calliope, I pray, and muses all. He's asking for all the muses to join him right now. Um, inspire me as I sing the bloody work, the deaths dealt out by Turnus on that day, and tell what men you go on. Um, at the bottom of page 281, um, Remulus, who's related to Turnus, begins to taunt the Trojans. Um, bottom of 281. Um, now this captain strode ahead and shouted boast that had or had not dignity inflated as he was by his new status. He swashbuckled <coughs> and cried, what? Not ashamed to be besieged again? They already lost Troy, right? They've suffered a destruction. Pinned by a rampart, walling yourselves away from death, you Phrygians, twice conquered, look, see those who claim our wives. Prizes of war, what God, what madness brought you to Italy. Here are no Atridae. Here is no artful talker like Ulysses, tough pioneers, our stock. We're tougher. They, they looked at the Trojans as effeminate. They really did. I mean, over and over again, they taunt them that way. They're, these, these are countrymen who are tough and bold and um, like country folk everywhere who think city people are just effeminate and spoiled. And Tough pioneers are stock. Our newborn sons we take to the river first to harden them in wilderness waves, ice cold. Our boys are keen at hunting. We, we raise our boys to be men. <laughs> Where do we hear that? I don't even want to go there, so leave it. Hard labor, too, and a life of poverty our young men are inured to. They can, they can crumble earth with hose or shake wall. Towns in war, our life is worn away with iron. These are tough. Go down. You people dress in yellow and glowing red. You live for sloth, and you go in for dancing. Sleeves to your tunics, ribbons to your cap, Phrygian women in truth, not Phrygian men. Does he have any idea? We all know what these men have been through for the last seven years. You know? well, it's interesting, though, so, and even though it reflects the, you know, this, in, in the Iliad and the Odyssey, they kept referring to their weaponry as basically being bronze. I mean, a mixture of four metals, basically, mm -hmm. or three metals, probably at that time, in terms of lead, copper, and and uh, ten, but I mean here they have actually have you know talking about iron, 
which is right, you know, I think the passage from the the element of, you know, the, written much, certainly much later than the Iliad and the Odyssey with regard to the to the, mm -hmm. to the weaponry. I mean, I gather they still had bronze, mm -hmm. some weaponry. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, but, uh, yeah. Uh, he goes, he goes on, Frid yeah. Phrygian women in truth, not Phrygian men, <laughs> climb Mount, did you, where the double pipes make songs for a feat. This is that point where you know um, Ascanius, we talked about this last time, didn't we, where he draws his bow, how this sets up with, didn't we talk about that? How it contrasts with um, Telemachus, when Telemachus strings the bow? Oh yeah, we mentioned it. Yeah, the difference, because remember in the, in the Odyssey, when Penelope sets up the bow contest, all the suitors try to string it and they can't. Then Telemachus tries and he's just ready to string it when Odysseus stops him because he wants to shoot the first arrow. But we know, t we know from that fact that Telemachus has reached manhood. He's prepared. The fun, radical difference here, no we talked about that, no father around. This man is taunting them and, um, and Ascanius has become so outraged. Um, um, he says he won't have any more to do with it. Ascanius could not abide the man, lines 865. Um, he, he strings the bow, sets an arrow, and shoots the man at the top of 283. Go on, please. Mock our courage with windy talk. Twice conquered Phrygians return its answer to the Rutulian. The arrow is true. The guy is shot. And um, the Trojans see this as a, a moment of um, blessedness. <coughs> Blessed be your newfound manhood, child, by striving so men reach for the stars, dear sons of God. Um, at the bottom of, or I mean, 284, about two-thirds of the way down, they kept Ascanius from it by command and will of Phoebus, while they all themselves pushed forward once again to join the fight. They want to protect him. He's a young boy, you know, because clearly he'd want to get in there. They're trying to protect the heir, the man who will carry on a... Um, Turnus gets trapped, 286. Um, the tower collapses, there's an opening in the gates, some Trojans rush in. Um, the, the fighting gets vicious at this point and um, um, Turnus splits this man's head in two and, and Homer describes the two heads falling on either side of the blade. Um, on page, this is a really important point. The Trojans are so terrified because Turnus is such an imposing, intimidating warrior in the middle of 287. And if the thought had come to the champion to break the gate bars to admit his friends, that would have been the last day of the war. But he's like Hector um, because he allows his rage to become greater than any sense, so he loses the moment. If he had had the moment, but the, re the reason I'm saying that this is going to set up because of something Aeneas does in Book 12, which is just the reverse. But here, um, the stockade could have been defeated easily um, in this part of the war, and maybe even the war ended. But um, very quickly, um, Aeneas gets makes a pact with the Etruscans um, and returns with the army and brings Pallas with him. Pallas has an Aristia. You remember what that is, where a warrior goes on this rampage and nobody can touch him. Um, 
on page 311, um, he's showing what a brave young man he is, um, Evander's son. And um, Turna steps forward to <coughs> battle with him and kills him on page 311 after he um, um, plunges his sword into him. He puts his foot on the body, on Pallas's body, and rips off, the way men did in the Iliad, rips off this belt for, as a trophy. That was his undoing. In the middle of the page, Arcadians note well and take back to Evander what I say. In that state which his father merited, I send back Pallas, and I grant in full what honor tombs confer, what consolation comes of burial. No small price you'll pay for welcoming Aeneas. As he spoke, he pressed with his left foot upon the dead and pulled away the massive weight. So in scorn, absolute contempt, um, he rips off this sword, but no respect um, for Pallas at all. Um, going over, Mesentius, who was the Etruscan king, remember, who was so bad that the people forced him out, goes to battle. He and Aeneas meet. Um, and Aeneas wounds him, page 323. Um, and when his son, Lausa, sees that his father's wounded, he steps in to protect him. So he steps in to fight Aeneas. Now think about it. And, Aene and Mezentius withdraws for a moment. Aeneas and Lausus fight for a moment, and Lausus is killed on page 324. Um, Aeneas kills him. Not wanting to, this is, this is how different he is, not wanting to kill this man, this young brave boy, who, who was coming to the defense of this father, who's an awful man. Um, his, 324, his life now left the body for the air and went to sorrow to the shades, but seeing the look on the young man's face in death, a face so pale as to be awesome, then Anchises' son groaned in profound pity, he held out his hand, as filial pity mirrored here, wrung his own heart and said, O poor young soldier, how will Aeneas reward your splendid fight? How honor you in keeping with your nature? Keep the arms you love to use, for I return you to your forebears ashen shades. Unlucky boy, one consolation for sad death is this, you die by the sword thrust of great Aeneas. Then giving Lausus's troops a sharp rebuke for hanging back he lifted from the ground the dead men as he lay, his well-combed hair soaking with blood. He tells these men to bear this prince off, deserving of his nobility. Um, um, okay, let me s stop. Um, those are just some of the important things. The, the, the next really important event to take place, there's actually two. Mezentius will return to the battle. He will. Um, he will get news that his son has just died, 3, 324. Actually, let's, let's take a quick look at it, just because something's extraordinary happening right now, and it gets to this last thing that I want to talk about. Page 325, in the middle of the page, Mezentius hears that his son has just been killed, and he says, did such pleasure in being alive and throw me son that I allowed you, whom I sire, to take my place before the enemy's sword. Am I, your father, saved by your wounds? By your death do I live? Um, now at the end, exile is misery to me. Now the wound of it goes deep. There's more. 
My son, I stained your name with wickedness. He's repenting. He goes out to meet Aeneas, wounded, um, and is fearless facing his own death. Now, I want to make a, a sort of bold comment because it's bringing us here. Nothing like this happens in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Nothing, even close to it. This man is as vicious and as mean as he can get. I, I think I just, you know how he punished people. He would put bodies together, tie them together, and they would decay. And, and he was such a foul king that they exiled him. When he learns that his son just died for him, he says that I let you do this. He goes out to fight Aeneas and will die. Um, when um, Virgil makes his um, um, invocation in the middle of the book, he invokes the god of love. When he, um, when he describes the ships, the catalog of the ships invokes the muses again. It's the god of love, the goddess of love, Erato, and the goddess of love poetry. I think what's happening on this field is that love has entered this world, and I, and I, 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 I want to give full force to this, because right now saying it may sound a little bit silly. Um, Evander died, or Evander's son died, Palestine, um, in love. Turnus took off his belt in absolute contempt. Aeneas fights Mezentius and wounds him. His son comes to defend his father, and Aeneas kills him. In that moment, Mezentius undergoes a conversion. It's as if Aeneas is bringing something to this world that's never been there before. And you remember who his mother is, it's Venus. Love has entered this world and it's so powerful that it's momentarily transformed this horrible, horrible figure who's acting in a selfless way for the first time in his life. That I would have let you do this, my son. I mean, those you know the words that I just read. So something strange is happening. Now let me, um, I want to stop for a moment because I've got a couple minutes to eat. Is that? Yeah, right. Oh, good. God, I, I'm good. Oh, I'm glad. I'm really good tonight. <laughs> I thought it was 8.10. I thought, no. And then I looked at him and said, no, it's, oh, I can slow down. This is good. This is good. Um, let me stop because I'm going to, I just wanted to read some episodes to take us up. I'm, I'm avoiding the last one. You know what happens. At the very end, um, there are these scenes where Aeneas and Turnus are chasing each other. And, and this is going to go to the point I'm going to make in a minute. Aeneas is chasing Turnus almost like a phantom. He's presented as a phantom and can't find him. And then there's the description where the two of them are killing men right and left. And Virgil's words are, on page 385, is it the three? Yeah, at the bottom of 385, after he's been describing Aeneas killing right and left and Turnus killing right and left, um, both of them unstoppable, um, at the bottom of 385, what God can help me tell, so dread a story. Who could describe that carnage in a song? The captains driven over the plain and killed by Turnus or interned by Troy's great hero. Was it thy pleasure, Jupiter, that peoples afterwards to live in lasting peace should rend each other in so black a storm? One of the points I'm going to make in a minute is Virgil was writing at the end of a century of civil wars. I think there were 12 civil wars. The Romans were killing each other right and left, constantly. So when he wrote these lines, anybody reading them had, had to have in mind 
that all these great treaties were made, all these pacts were made, and they weren't enough to keep men from killing themselves, their brothers, their families, their sisters. So, so hold on to this because um, remember, Ascanius gave Aeneas his calling and, and he said, your calling will be to put down the pride, the proud. And over and over again, he keeps saying to the, to the Latins and the Rutulians, let's make a peace. We will all live together. And my, my, my word is that we will, our Trojans will never violate a trust. We will live together under a common law. That was his promise. And what, what we know of Virgil's audience when they were reading this is that Romans had been killing each other for century. This is after the Punic Wars where they were at war with Carthage. So, so let me stop. What, what, what Virgil is showing us is something um, much graver, um, much darker than anything Homer does, even though Homer's the Iliad is full of bloodshed <coughs> every page. Um, so what's going on and how is this work different? And I'm going to make the claim tonight that it in, um, in some ways better. What's going on? Um, let me put it in this perspective. There's um, a couple of things that I want to call to mind that we've already looked back, but I want to bring them up now because of um, what Virgil's doing at the end of this book. Converging realities. What do I mean by that? Um, Let me, let me just quickly review some lines in the book that are all pointing to what's going on here. If, if, we, if we read the book and get caught up in the fighting um, and forget how related they are to this whole, this founding of Rome, this great city, I, I think we'll miss a lot. And I think we'd certainly miss what I'm calling converging realities. Something's happening that's greater than anybody sees with all this killing. It's the poet who sees it. Um, we've seen since Aeneas landed in Italy that there's been a tendency to see him as Paris. Repeatedly, Turnus presents him that way, that he stole his bride, and that he says he's going to be an Achilles to this <coughs> Paris. Um, so from their perspective, um, Aeneas is repeating a crime that he's stealing the bride and he will pay for it. When the Sibyl makes her invocation in the beginning, she says to Aeneas, and you will encounter another Achilles. So there's this ambiguity. Turnus in some sense sees himself as Achilles answering Aeneas who is Paris, yes? When, from another perspective, the book is encouraging us to see that Turnus himself is Achilles. Um, and Turnus is, uh, Aeneas is bringing something new um, to this battle. So what's at stake here is how people, once again, how people read. And it's really clear that Aeneas has been doing everything he can to follow the gods, and Turnus does nothing to pay attention to the gods. Um, um, Amada, 
when she learns that she's going to that Lavinia is going to be married to Turnus and tells Turnus about it, um, and she's she's told that Lavinia will marry a foreign-born. Her first response is to say that Turnus then is foreign-born because he's not a Latin people. So she twists. She twists things to make it fit. So once I mean we've we've been talking about this since the Odyssey that the difficulty of reading and it's particularly. Oh, was he born in Canada? <laughs> um, it's been an important thing. It's particularly true in this book because of all these prophecies and, and Aeneas himself having trouble understanding what the gods want. But let me rehearse these to get to this point that I want to make. Sybil's prophecy when Aeneas enters Apollo's temple. Wars, vicious wars, I see ahead and Tiber foaming blood. Simois, you'll have them all again with an Achilles. The whole Trojan War is going to be repeated again. She tells Aeneas, don't be anxious anymore. You are where you're meant to be. And she put it. But it will be far worse than you realize. So there will be no rest here, even though you've come home. Juno's fury at seeing Aeneas as Paris. She says of herself, she's defeated. She curses both people to war, united in blood, sees the war as Lavinia's dowry. Hecuba is not the only one who carried a burning brand within her and bore a son whose marriage fired a city. Remember, Hecuba is Paris's mother. Paris is the one who took um, Helen. A funeral torch again for Troy reborn. Hecuba dreamed that she carried a burning brand within her, a prophecy of Troy. That's actually the dream that Hecuba had as a mother before she gave birth. That's the pair story. Amada, um, shedding hot tears for the marriage of her child to a Phrygian. These Trojan refugees who will be left alone by the faithless man, the rover going to sea at the first north wind with a girl for booty, she's liking him to Paris. Was that not the way the Phrygian shepherd entered Lacedaemon? Is that not the way the Trojan went to Sparta, Menelaus' house, and took and carried Helen off to Troy, far city? Um, so over and over again, these people keep seeing. This is extraordinary. They keep interpreting things in in terms of stories. Which is what we do all the time. If we're if we're watching the debates right now, our tendency will be will be to take what we know, what stories we have. They become a filter by which we interpret everything. So everywhere in the book, everybody's doing that. The question is, are they seeing a divine dimension to what's going on, and are they open to it, or are they turning it? So we're, it, it's what he learned from Homer and the Odyssey. Turnus, speaking of Aeneas's Paris, I have my fate as well to combat theirs, to cut this criminal people down, my bride being stolen. This is when he's in the, in the stockade. Um, um, he says in the, step, in the stockade, step forward if you have the heart for it, you will be telling Priam Achilles has been found again. He's identifying himself with Achilles, ready to defeat Aeneas, i.e. Paris. So the whole world has been turned inside out. Now remember that, hold on to this, because all the metaphors are inverting everything. They're, they're taking the Trojan story, carrying it over, but turning it inside out. And I want to say that that way because remember, we talked about the importance of the labyrinth. 
that what Aeneas faced when he went into the underworld was the maze, the Minotaur maze. And the question that I posed then is, are we to see Aeneas as, um, who's the hero of the Greek, who went into Theseus? Are we to see Aeneas as Theseus going into the maze to defeat the Minotaur? Because he's constantly faced with illusions, images, illusions, dreams, deceptions, lies. So on one dimension, as we're watching Aeneas go through all of this, if we've got the labyrinth metaphor behind us, we're aware this is far more complicated. You know, everybody's misreading this. What's the truth about all this? Who sees it? Um, Remulus, remember the guy that um, Ascanius shot? You Phrygians twice conquered, look, see those who claim our wives, prizes of war. He's Paris taking Helen again. So um, think about the prophecies that have been at work here, particularly in the second half of the book, from the time that they go into the underworld to the end. When they arrive at, um, in Italy, Latinus has that prophecy we talked about it, where the where the bees are around the bush and L Lavinia's hair lights up, and he commits her to a foreign-born because he knows that now she will be married to somebody other than Turnus. He breaks his word with Turnus and civil war breaks out. Um, Ascanius, they're eating the tables. Aeneas, when he sees the sow on the river Tiber, um, when Turnus sets fire to the ships and they're turned into nymphs, the gods are showing there's something immortal going on involving the Trojans. Um, Aeneas is shield, and when he's with Evander, just before Evander leaves, he, Evander tells him, go to um, the Etruscans because they're awaiting a foreigner. Nobody here in Italy can rule. So all of these realities are converging, something strange, and it's not just from one aspect or one place, from everywhere. Diomedes sends word and says, I'm not going to help you. It's futile to be doing what you're doing. All these different words, prophecies, events, are pointing towards something happening. Um, and let me even let me reinforce that even more right now. Just before Aeneas leaves Palantium, Avengers sends him to the Lydians. They get this prophecy, and the prophecy says. And though Mezentius fires you with rightful anger, no Italian may command of this great people's cause. Choose leaders from abroad. The Lydians, the Etruscans, know um, that they're going to make an alliance with somebody who's going to be led by some foreigner. How extraordinary this all is. The embassy back from Diomedes. Um, Turnus is waiting at the pass, page 364. He just gets word that Camilla has been defeated and the Volscians are en route. He leaves the pass where he was in ambush for Aeneas. As soon as he leaves, Aeneas comes through the pass. Two minutes earlier, dead. Aeneas comes through the pass and heads to the plain and immediately on page 287, I don't, we don't have time to read, it says he had this insight from his mother. He turned and looked at the city and there was this image of the city, peaceful, quiet, defenseless. And unlike Turnus in the stockade, he says, go destroy that city, set it to fire. 
he immediately torches it. When Turnus gets the news, finally it means enough to him to, to honor the pact that he'd made to fight. When he sees the cities in blade, he agrees, he agrees to fight Aeneas. And so all of these realities converging, and not from one or two <coughs> perspectives, from everywhere. It's almost like you could draw a circle and they're all pointing towards this one point. What's this one point? It's that all of these things, it's, it's, <laughs> this is going to sound really, it's a little bit like all the prophecies pointing towards Christ coming. This, clearly this is not Christ. But can you see the parallel? All these amazing things are pointing towards the founding of Rome, the coming of this city, and what it will mean. Um, and this is all just before Christ came. Okay, one, one last thing. What is Virgil's view of man? Um, the, the Aeneid ends with Turnus and Aeneas doing battle. Up page 402. Aeneas wounds Turnus and um, Turnus is crippled enough that at the top of the page um, he asks for mercy. He says, clearly I, cl I earned this and I ask no quarter. Make the most of your good fortune here. If you can feel a father's grief and you too had such a father, then um, let me bespeak your mercy for old age in downness and return me or my body stripped. Aeneas vacillates. It's a tortured moment for him. Part of him wants to spare Turnus. He's ready, to, it seems to me, he's ready to spare him, but then as he contemplates his options, he looks down and he sees Pallas's belt and associates it with the contempt that Turnus showed this young boy. Um, towards the bottom, blazing up and terrible in his anger, he called out, you and your plunder torn from one of mine, shall I be robbed of you? This wound will come from Pallas. Pallas makes this offering and from your criminal blood exacts his due. He sank his blade in fury in Turnus's chest. Then all the bloody slackened, all the body slackened in death's chill. And with a groan for that indignity, his spirit fled into the gloom below. That's the end of the Aeneid. Now let me stop for a second here. There are lots of critics who, who come to this point and say, We've not escaped the Iliad. We're back in the Iliad. This is Achilles. With all of these inversions that have been going on, that even though Turnus has been called Achilles and identifies with him, um, um, that, that at this point it seems as if Aeneas becomes Achilles and kills. So it, 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 it leaves us with this ambivalence about who this hero is and what this Rome is, whether all the positive things that at least I've been saying about it are, are made futile. That what Virgil is saying is no matter how hard you try to escape this Greek past that I've been saying was left behind, what Virgil is saying finally is you can't. That ultimately you come back to this Achilles figure that is so much a part of our nature that this is what we're left with. We never see Rome going up. We never see the foundations laid. But Aeneid ends here. So this not yet, this thing that is to be, is still to be, but we're left with this very dark image.
Now let me try to put this in perspective. However, is it Go really ahead. true Go that, ahead. Is that Virgil was going to write more according to the notes of the back who, that he who, died? We don't early. know. We don't know. So maybe he wasn't going to end it that way. We don't know. <laughs> you want it to end differently. Right. I, actually, I like it. Said. I like it. But it's a, I mean, it's, a, it's a genuine question. Scholars debate the matter. Let me offer you my last thoughts on Virgil's um, worldview here. At least what I make of this ending in light of the whole work, because it's a dark, dark ending. Um, and, and if any of you took seriously this question, it would probably throw a dark light on Why did he, if this, is, if this is Virgil's view, why would Dante have chosen him? I mean, Homer's a, at least got some bright spot on him. Homer, Virgil seems to be really dark, but here, hold off on that. A couple of things here. Um, I, want, I want to leave you with this thought. Between 133 BC and 31 BC, before Augustus assumed office and the Pax Ramona, the Peace of Rome, came into effect, Rome was torn apart by no less than 12 civil wars. So these took place during Virgil's lifetime. So when he was writing about these pacts and these truces that would bring a law and order and that the Trojans would never violate them, when he, when he puts those in Aeneas's mouth, he's really clear about all the betrayals that have been taking place among Romans with themselves. Civil wars, killing each other. It's not even a matter of killing Troy, because we've already seen how bad Troy, or I mean Carthage. Carthage is the spirited, no, it's for the noble, but not for the common people. Um, Virgil was aware of all that. The Gaelic Wars, um, the Battle of Pharsalia, Caesar was murdered. Um, Brutus and um, Cassius went to war with Anthony, remember, and Cleopatra, so it never stopped. Um, Virgil was writing during this period. Now two things, turn just quickly back to the beginning of book six, the underworld and the labyrinth. <coughs> on page 169. This is as he's entering the underworld. It says, before the entrance in the jaws of Orcus, grief and avenging, hold on to this now. We, remember we've, we've seen, this is so important. Remember in the Odyssey, in, in Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey. In the Odyssey, in the middle of the story, Odysseus sits down to tell his stories. The underworld is a part of those stories, right? In Aeneas, the underworld is outside the stories. He's told the stories in book two and three. He comes to the underworld just before he goes to Italy. Why? <coughs> I mean, the only, the only thing that I can come to is because it's Virgil's way of saying, this is not a part of stories. This has an objective reality independent of anything Aeneas would tell about his adventures. That it's real. And remember I said that in the Odyssey, when we did the Odyssey, that one of the, one of the important things that Homer was showing us is that we can really never get home until we learn from the dead. Because it's, it's with the dead that we see final ends, what people become. So whatever we do in this world, whatever is hidden surfaces. <laughs> it unmasks everything. The secrets we hold, the sins that we commit, the inside. 
If we don't learn to see final things, then we're deceived about a lot of what we do in this world, about ourselves and others. So going to the underworld is not just an adventure. It's absolutely essential to getting home. And it's absolutely essential before Aeneas goes on to Rome, except the difference is it's not a part of the stories. It has an objective reality. It's outside the stories. It's Virgil's way of saying, this is real. Now remember what he, what he faces when he enters it. The, the image on the gate, remember, was the minotaur and the maze, the labyrinth. And what he would be facing in the way of a labyrinth. And, and it's, it's been nothing but deceptions, illusions, lies, deceptions, um, over and over and over again with everything. This is the description before he goes into the underworld. Before the entrance in the, lo- in the jaws of Orcus, grief and avenging cares have made their beds. Pale diseases and sad age are there, and dread and hunger that sways men to crime and sordid want go down. And the iron cubicles of the Eumenides in raving discord, viperish hair bound up in gory bands. In the courtyard, a shadowy giant elm spread ancient boughs for ancient arms were dreams, false dreams. The old tale goes, beneath each leaf clings and are numberless. There too, about the doorway, forms of monsters crowd, centaurs twiformed, it goes on, <coughs> hissing horribly in the chimera, breathing dangerous flames and gorgons, harpies, gone over, huge Garion, triple-bodied ghost, here swept by sudden fear, drawing his sword, Aeneas stood on guard with naked edge against them as they came. If his companion, knowing the truth, had not admonished him, how faint these lives were, empty images. Remember how differentiated hell is. When he gets to the final past, those on one side are Tartarus, the ones who committed mostly crimes against the God, and the blessed. So we see people as they actually are, because that's what they've become, that's what they made of themselves. And remember, we talked about it. He goes out through the gate of false dreams. What's Virgil showing us? It seems to me he's closest to Christ, closer to Christ than Homer in this way. What Virgil's saying is that there is no enterprise on this earth that won't finally come to nothing. That so much of what we do is full of illusions, even when we're doing great things. Does that mean there's nothing great about what Aeneas has done? I don't think so, because his whole life has been a life of renunciations. But set him against everybody else, and what Homer Virgil showing us is <coughs> dreams, illusions, lies, betrayals. Um, so why does Dante choose Virgil? Because before you can ever get to Purgatorio in the Divine Comedy, you, you have to go down to see yourself as you are. So, there, so to go back to my opening comments, the pagans saw that human beings were capable of this great good, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. But Virgil, I think Dante would say, is greater than Homer because he was much more conscious of how illusory the things that we do in this life are. And in that way, he's pointing to Christ because Christ is going to say, give up everything. We may be able to do these great things here on earth, but that's not our final destiny. There's something more. And here's my last word on Virgil. So, 
I'm going to say that in my mind, as I read Virgil, he's much closer to St. Paul than anybody I know. Um, the difference between Virgil and Homer is that Virgil loved the world enough to grieve over it because he knew it was all passing. He's exactly like Paul when Paul says, I wish I could stay here. One of his letters, you know, he says, I wish I could stay here and not go to Christ because he felt so bad he wanted to help people here. In my mind, Virgil comes much closer to that um, because he's aware of, of, of how much everything is given to being lost. Melancholy Virgil. He loved everything enough to grieve for it because he knew it would be lost. So he's the great, I'm going to say, he's the great <coughs> poet leading us to grace. He's not there. But if you look at them... Kind of like Our Lady of Sorrows. Oh, just exactly. I mean, he's, he's, he's a pagan. He's not a Christian, so he's, you know, he's not... Yeah. But if you look at his world, it's almost as if he had intimations of it without knowing it. And he knew that the only way you could get to it was to, to grieve because it would all be lost. So the difference between him and Homer, as I read him, is that he had this great capacity to grieve over everything because he loved it so much. He's a great poet of natural love, as we know it. Christ is just beyond the borders. Let me stop there, okay? Um, we've got five minutes to get out of here. I still pressed. How, how, how is this going to be divided up? How much do we have to read? Oh, God. Next, our next class, we're going to start the Divine Comedy. I'm going to take the first class and do an overview. Okay. So, I mean, just read. I, I, I haven't even figured it out. I can't answer because I haven't thought about it. But the first class is just going to be a, a general overview. I'm going to do a historical overview of some things. And I'm going to look at a couple of things in the, in the Divine Comedy just to get us started. But, so my suggestion is start reading because it's, you'll enjoy it. And, and, but don't feel like you have to have anything read by next week. Because I, I'm not on schedule. But when, when we meet next week, I'll, I'll set all that up. OK, we did it. We did it. We did this pagan world and we're on to the Divine Comedy. God, I don't know about you guys, but I'm worn out. Well, thank you. The effort, the effort was monumental. Are there more books in the office? That's it. God, you want one here? I've got one at home. Jared's supposed to order some more. I don't know if he has. How can I get it to you? What's the easiest for you? I'm not going to be here at Mass until Thursday. Where do you live? I live in Grapevine. Where? Right down the, um, over off of Silvercrest. I'm off of Silvercrest. Oh, you are? You want to come by my house and I'll give it to you. Yeah. <laughs> you want me to hear directions? More neighbors, if I see you before, I'll bring it to you. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll, you want to come by and I'll just give it to you. Okay. Did you write your name down? No, I'm not worried about it. Just, I'll check with him. Okay. If you go up Silvercrest, you can follow me or go up there and wait. But if you go up Silvercrest, make the very first left. Okay. 
How about going there and I'll just meet you there in a couple of minutes? Okay. Or you can follow me. Okay, I'll be out in a minute. I just have to put things together. Okay. This is for the book and then for the copy. Man put $20 down, but he didn't sign his name. I'll just, I'm not worried. I have an extra 20th. Yeah, 